You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Go ahead and tell the person beside you the title of my sermon this morning. Am I a Christian? Part one. Am I a Christian? I hear some murmurings there in the crowd. I hope you're actually asking that personally. Uh, that's good. That's good that you're asking that. But this morning, if, the, if this is your first time here at Plus Life this morning, we are in the middle of our study in the Gospel of John. And we are in John chapter 6, as we just read from the passage. And we're going through this, this whole this discourse that's unfolding in this narrative uh, of Jesus and these people who are trying to follow him. Now, as you may have uh, read, or if you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, we know that Jesus has already perform two miracles at the beginning part of John chapter 6. The first one being the feeding of the 5,000, which was more like around fifteen to 20,000 if you include the men and women, or sorry, the women and children there. And then after that, what we looked at last week was Jesus' personal miracle to the disciples, right? Jesus walking on the water and the disciples seeing that event. Now, what's interesting is that these miracles have a lot, of, a lot in common Namely, they both demonstrate the divinity of Christ, right? Jesus, with the feeding of the 5,000, creates food out of nothing, right? That's what happened with the loaves and fishes. With Jesus and the disciples, him walking on the water is showing his command over nature itself, being able to walk on water. Now, in addition to that, we also know that these miracles were very personal, Right? Remember how we read how, how John, the way that he records the feeding of the 5,000, is that Jesus was very intentional and very personal in that approach. He himself distributed the food to the people who were hungry. In the same way, the, the walking on the water scene, Jesus himself as well. He, he, that, is, that was a personal experience that the disciples had with Jesus. Now, What's interesting is that these miracles are, are the foundation of what happens throughout the rest of this chapter, what, are the, what happens in this discourse that's about to take place. If, if you remember, each scene that is in chapter 6 is one connected piece. It all culminates to what happens at the end where a whole bunch of Jesus' disciples leave him, abandon him, and only the 12 remain. Now, you have to ask yourself, like, why is that? Why is it that these, all these disciples, after seeing those two great miracles, very similar miracles, that only the twelve remain? Well, an underlying theological theme in John chapter 6 is something that we've already looked at here at the church, is, and that's monergism. Right? Monergism. And, and we've talked about these two positions before in the past. Monergism versus synergism. Synergism is the idea that, you know, God and man works together for the salvation of humanity. In the sense that God, uh, he, he, he sets up the playing field, so to speak. He sends his son Jesus to die on the cross. He makes a payment for our sin. And it falls on the responsibility of humanity to make that choice to follow Jesus. That's synergism, right? There's, there's equal parts in, in terms of how salvation works. But monergism, and that's, the, again, the theological theme that's flowing through chapter 6, is the idea that only God alone, God alone works for the salvation of humanity. 
That it is the, the salvific work of God is only in him. And in fact, uh, there is human responsibility entitled in, in to that or in, involved in that. But even in that, we know that it is God who wills and works in us to work for his good pleasure. It's God who causes us, regenerates our heart so that we can choose him. That's monergism. Now, that's a position of plus life as well. That's our stance and what we believe, and because that's what we believe is consistent with Scripture, and even more so consistent with what we see in our passage, well, in this chapter, uh, in, in, in chapter, or in, in our study in the Gospel of John, and of course in our chapter, uh, chapter 6 of John as well. That apart from the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in us, we cannot choose God. And we know this because in, without God, apart from God, we are sinfully depraved. Right? We are born with a sinful nature, and in that sinful nature, we cannot choose God. Now, with that said, we know that it's only after the, the Holy Spirit has regenerated hearts that we can choose God. And we see that theme throughout John's uh, gospel. He's very consistent with that. If you remember in John chapter 3, right? John says the light has come into the world, but we love the darkness rather than the light. John is saying, yeah, Jesus came into the world, but we chose instead the darkness, even though the most beautiful, the most, you know, the perfect, the, the, the most, you know, person that we could ever rely on and be satisfied in came into this world, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, we still chose darkness. Now, in addition to that, if you, if you remember in John chapter 3, his whole discourse or his conversation with Nicodemus, right? Jesus brings up this, this and we've probably heard this before, right? He said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this is a very straightforward metaphor, right? Jesus is saying the same way that you had no choice no say, no, no opinion or preference in the matter of you being born physically. You have no choice or preference or opinion being born, reborn spiritually, right? That's what Jesus is talking about when you're, when we're being born again. Now, of course, he goes on to say, right? Truly, truly, verse five of that, of chapter three, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. See, Jesus was referring to this great monergistic uh, passage in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 36. Turn there with me real quick. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, and then all the way to verse 27. It says this, I will sprinkle, this is God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules." Again, if we're looking for that passage, that reference that Jesus is talking about in John chapter 3, verse 5, right, being born of water, being born of spirit, it's right, all, it's all in there in Ezekiel chapter 36. Now notice, all in that passage that we just read, the I will, I will, I will, it's God who will save his people, who will cleanse us, who will, who will put his spirit within us, who will remove that stone heart and put in a heart of flesh. It is God who will cause us to walk in his commands. All of God's work. And now that, that whole idea of, that whole theological theme of monergism is consistent all throughout John chapter 6 in our passage and in our chapter. And it's actually even more explicit. Look at John chapter 6 verse 44. This is what Jesus says. He says, no one can come to, the, to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. What does no one mean? 
Absolutely no one, right? There isn't a specific group of people that Jesus is talking about here. He's saying absolutely no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Unless the Father is the one who is, who is, who is pursuing him and who is, who is, who is drawing that sinner's heart towards him, who is regenerating the sinner's heart, no one can come to God. That is monergism in our passage. And, it's, and, it's, and again, it flows all the way through the rest of the chapter. And then we see that, we sort of see that illustrated all the more at, at what happens towards the end of John chapter 6 when these so-called disciples, these people who are trying to follow Jesus, end up abandoning him. Let's jump real, da- let's jump real quick to verse 63 of chapter 6. Everyone's okay with spoilers, right? Right? Yes? Okay? John chapter 6, verse 63. We're going to cover this a couple, you know, a couple of weeks from now, but hopefully you're okay with spoilers. But here it is. It says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. In verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father, by the Father. And this, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, the point of chapter 6, right, this is it. Jesus is demonstrating to his disciples, right, communicating to them that, listen, unless God the Father draws you, this is what's going to happen. You're going to fall away. You can pretend to be a disciple. You can be, pretend to be a Christian. Come to church. Do, sing all the songs. You know, give your money. Give, you know, your, your food, your, your, your canned goods. All of these things. You can pretend all you want. But at the end of the day, unless God himself draws you to himself, regenerates your heart, then you truly aren't a believer. And remember what John's, John's point of his entire gospel is, Right? In John chapter 20, verse 31, we go through this every, every weekend, right? If these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have, you might have life in his name. John's whole point for this gospel is so that we would believe, so that his readers would come to true and genuine, sincere faith. But what he's talking about in John chapter 6, and this is the sixth chapter of his gospel, is that, listen, unless God draws you, you'll end up like these people in chapter 6. You'll fall away. And, and we'll see why. And we'll see why they abandoned Christ. Because these so-called disciples, and, and Jesus does call them disciples. Right? Towards, that, towards the end of the chapter, he, he does refer to them as disciples. But these people who profess to be followers of Christ have ulterior motives, as we'll see today, or as, we'll, as we'll start seeing today. And that's why they later desert him. Now, chapter 6 gives us characteristics of false believers, false Christians, false followers of Christ. And so my hope for us this morning is that we would examine ourselves. We would truly examine our hearts towards God, towards Christ, and really ask the question, why am I here this morning? And as the title has, has asked, right, am I truly a Christian Am I truly a Christian? Have I come to God with the right heart, with the right mindset? Or is my heart in the wrong place? Because let me tell you, brothers and sisters, right, dear friends, if your heart is not right with God this morning, then it doesn't matter how often you come to this church, all the songs that you sing, you will eventually fall away. You will eventually fall away. So my hope this morning is that we would truly be convicted by the Holy Spirit and that if we have not been right with God, 
that we would come to faith this morning, that we would repent and truly come to faith in a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, many in the world profess to be Christians, right? I mean, we have a country just down south who, who believe that they're Christians because that's sort of part of their culture, part of their, their, their heritage. But the reality is only those who the Father has, has called, as we just read in our passage, those who, are, who have been drawn and have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit can truly call themselves believers. And that's a question for you to answer, a question for me to answer as well. Am I, am I, am I truly a Christian? Or else, again, later we will abandon. So this morning, check your hearts. And if you are found wanting, I ask you to truly repent and get right with God. So let's jump into our passage this morning. It's going to be awkward because I have to hold a microphone this morning. Let's jump into our passage this morning and let's break it down. Everyone say, jump for me. Amen. So in verse 22, it says this. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had, had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered that boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Now, this is interesting. There's a sense of curiosity there. It's like they already know, okay, Jesus didn't leave with his disciples. He went up to the mountain, right? He shooed us away. And now they're back there and they're saying, wait, how did Jesus get across the shore? So there's a sense of curiosity there, and that's going to build up to something else. In verse 23 now, other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Now, these are a whole bunch of other people right? Other boats now. So these are people who weren't part of that first miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. And so now they're like, they had probably heard the news that Jesus was giving out food, giving out free food, right? Like Costco. And now it's like, okay, well, I want my peace, right? So they're on this boat. They're looking for Jesus as well. Verse 24. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went into Capernaum seeking Jesus. So again, they're in the pursuit now. They want to see more miracles. They, they heard the story that Jesus just fed a whole bunch of them. And now these other people coming from the other side want to see that as well. Now, this gives us the first characteristic of a false Christian, believe it or not. And a false Christian chases a spectacle. A false Christian chases a, spe- a spectacle. This is probably the shallowest form of Christianity. Christianity, quote unquote, right? Those who profess to be Christians for a show for a presentation, for uh, uh, some sort of, of, uh, of spectacle, something to be amused by, something to be entertained by. Uh, this past week, as we mentioned, or probably were there, right? We had the Summer Jam picnic, and it was interesting to see. Um, by the way, I don't know about you all who played Tug of War, but I'm still sore physically, right? And also emotionally, because we lost <laughs> Uh, you know, honest truth, that thing just has been replaying in my head all week. Like, how did we lose? Right? Uh, but that's okay. It's okay. I forgive the sinners who, who won against their pastor. It's all right. That's fine. But, uh, we'll get you next year, right? Um, if that's the Lord's will. But in any case, during the summer jam picnic is, is really, it's interesting because we're, uh, during the, the word portion of that picnic, I was sharing the gospel and, it was interesting to see. I saw people on the pathway, right, because we're at the public park, people on the pathway coming over, just sort of standing outside of our little booth area, or not our booth, but our enclosement area, and sort of just, you know, having their arms crossed and just watching in. Like, what's happening here? I heard some people singing. Now there's a guy talking very loud. Like, what's going on, right? And so it's interesting that people are coming to see what this whole spectacle, this whole show that they thought it was. And similarly, these people... Who are in, who in our passage, they were looking for Jesus for that show. 
They were looking to see what Jesus could do, right? Did did he really multiply the, the loaves and the fishes? Did he really heal those people? They were coming out for a spectacle. Now, there are oftentimes people who come to the church looking for that supernatural uh, experience, right? To get that, that sort of excitement, to escape sort of the, mon- the, the mundanity of life. People who, who go, to, go to church for the sake of the production, the performance, for the lights, and the, and, and the, the, you know, the performance is being displayed on the stage, and all for that sort of emotional high. And I think we've talked about this in the past as well. You know, I was, interesting enough, I was uh, watching, uh, you know, what that, the, the kids watch these days, right? It's called Tick a Talk. I don't know if you've heard of this. Um, and there's this, uh, so I saw this Tick a Talk, and there is a, there is a, uh, oh, it was, you know, what, you know, how come I'm not a Christian anymore? That was, that was, that was the whole, I guess, uh, the bracket or whatever category that Tick a Talk was on. And so this, uh, this lady, she was saying, you know, I was a believer. I was going through the church. I was going through the experiences, going through the worship services and all these things, right? Until I went to a rock concert and I, exp- and, and I experienced the same exact things at a rock concert, right? You know, I felt that, she was saying how she felt that same connection, that emotional high at a rock concert, some worldly rock concert. Well, I think that's part of the reason why emotionalism in churches today is so dangerous. Because it gets you to connect your faith with your, your feelings. And unless you are feeling, so we talked about this last week, unless you are feeling that emotional connection, that emotional high with God, then you start to think, well, you know, maybe I'm not actually connected. Maybe, you know, I can get this emotional high, this excitement somewhere else. And, uh, and the same thing with this, this woman that I watched in this video, right? That was the same thing for her. She was getting that, that excitement that she wanted to find in the church, in Christ, elsewhere. But that is, again, a characteristic of a false Christian, a false follower of Christ. Someone who is just there for the experience, for the excitement, for the, the emotional high, the spectacle, the performance, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 to 4 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. See, unfortunately, churches are like this, right? A lot of churches in in modern-day Christianity often cultivate this kind of atmosphere in their church. Where, hey, you know what, come out to our church because we're putting on this performance. We're putting on this, you know, this, this spectacle. Like we're putting on these lights and the show so that you can be impressed by our service. And so that for some reason, that would attract you to Christ. I thought Christ was good enough, right? I thought Christ was sufficient. And churches do this all the time. There's one church, one mega church that you probably heard of that sang Katy Perry at their worship service. Like, who sings Katy Perry at worship service? If, if there's, there's another church, you can look this up, not right now, but maybe after service, right? Look up Wrestling Theology. Wrestling Theology. It's basically churches in the South, in America, who put on a wrestling match during church service to attract people, right? And then, you know, they're, they're pinning sin down, one, two, three, and then, you know, you tap out for Christ or something like that. I forgot what their slogan is. But that's that's essentially what a lot of churches, modern-day churches, are doing. They're putting on a spectacle just so that they can attract people to their churches and say, hey, look at us. But again, that breeds for very superficial, shallow Christians. The point of uh, 
The point of modern day churches is not to point you to uh, Jesus, I feel. It's to point them, point you to the spectacle, to the show. And listen, when the spectacle supersedes the spiritual, when the spectacle supersedes the savior, something is absolutely wrong. Something's absolutely wrong. Real faith doesn't, doesn't depend on, on, on the feelings or the senses that you might feel, right? Real faith doesn't depend on, on how you feel at the moment or if you're feeling that emotional high. And, and, you know, it's interesting enough, I was having this conversation with my wife this, this past week, right? Parents know this. Parents know this who have to deal with all these kids and have to deal with the stress of, of taking care of these kids, right? They, they're not feeling that, that, you know, that, that mountaintop high as maybe single Christians might be feeling or those valleys. Parents often feel like, okay, now I have to continue to worship God, continue to follow God, even in the, the, the mundane things of life, even in the normal things of life. And, and oftentimes it's a struggle of, of thinking, okay, well, how do I continue pursuing God even though, you know, I, I'm not experiencing those victories or I'm not experiencing those, those deep depressions of life or the deep lows of life where I'm crying out to God. It's in the normalcy. It's in the normalcy that it becomes harder to follow God, I feel, right? And so, and so absolutely false Christians chase after a spectacle. They chase after those highs and lows of the faith. Now, an application, right? If, if, if you're here to be entertained, right? If you're here for a show, if you're here to feel some sort of emotional high, I'm telling you, this is not the place to do that. We're not that kind of church. But listen, what we can't offer you is truly the, the real person that can satisfy those longings that you are feeling. That idea of escape that you're trying to experience from your, the normalcy of your life, that hope that you're trying to experience and encounter, we can only offer you Christ not entertainment. And here, because here's the reality of it, right? Listen, Jesus did not die for your entertainment. Jesus did not die for your entertainment. So that's, that's the first characteristic. We see false Christians chase a spectacle. Now let's go on to verse 25 uh, to 27 of our passage. It says this, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? I love this because they're kind of like, hey, like they're, 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 they're pretending to be good friends with Jesus. Hey, Rabbi, Pastor, hey, how's it going? When did you get here? And then, and then Jesus cuts straight to it, right? He gets straight to the chase. He goes, verse 26, listen, I know why you're here. Like truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus is saying, listen, you didn't come here to verify, to authenticate the signs I performed, right? You're just here to get more food, right? You're just here to get more loaves and fishes. Now, Jesus says something interesting uh, in the next uh, verse, verse 27. Listen, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Now, this is interesting, because Jesus is clearly saying to, to these people who, who have, you know, made the effort to, to, to sail across the sea to find him. And he says to them, do not work for the food that perishes, meaning, you know, the physical food. He says, right, do not work for the, the, the physical food, but work for the ones that will lead to eternal life. Now, you have to sort of ask, is, is now Jesus saying, hey, is, is, he, is he talking about this eternal food? Is he talking about salvation? And therefore, is he talking about works or, you know, working for salvation, right? Because Jesus just told them, that's sort of the, the line of thinking there, right? Jesus says, don't work for the physical, 
work for the eternal food, and if you imply that that eternal food is salvation, then then you sort of connect the dots. Is Jesus saying that you have to work for your salvation? Well, by no means, because that would be very inconsistent with all what, all what John has already said throughout his gospel, right? That again, monergism, right? That is God's work that saves humanity, right? It's not anything of that, what we could do. It's not our works that saves us. It's by faith. John 3.16, for those who believe will have eternal life. So it's by faith that someone is saved. So what's Jesus talking about here? Because he can't be contradicting everything that he's already said throughout the entire gospel. So what's Jesus saying? Well, first and foremost... What is this bread that leads to eternal life, right? Again, Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. What is this, he, what is this thing that he is talking about? This bread that, that, that uh, endures to eternal life. Well, just read a couple of verses down, right? Verse uh, 35 of our passage. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So that food that Jesus is clearly talking about in verse 27 is himself. That, that food that endures to eternal life is him, because he just says, I am the bread of life, right? You, you come to me, and of course, we're going to see a whole bunch of that uh, conversation down in chapter 6 as well, where he says, hey, listen, you know, unless you eat from me, unless you drink of my blood, guess what? You won't have eternal life. So Jesus is this food that endures to eternal life. So now that begs the question, does that mean then that we need to work for Jesus, that we might receive Jesus? Do we need to work in order to receive Jesus, the bread of life? Again, works, you know, salvation by works. By no means, because again, verse 27, all, Jesus already says in our passage, um, work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So Jesus is already saying, hey, I'm going to give it to you anyways. You don't need to work for it. And then in verse 6 to 37, or if you look a couple of verses more down, uh, in verse 37 to 40, it says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus is not saying, you don't need to work to get me. Listen, it is my job. Jesus is saying, it's my job to work for you, to keep you, to do the will of the Father and raise you up on the last day. Jesus is the one who's saying, listen, again, right? Monergism, this is the idea that Jesus, that God himself is the one who is going to work for our salvation. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man himself is already working to give to you. Now, what's interesting is that this whole discourse is, is you know, the people were, were, were focused on the physical. They were just looking for something to eat. But Jesus was looking at the spiritual. And this is another characteristic or another flaw of, of, of false Christians is that false Christians crave the physical. False Christians crave the physical. People were there for food. Not spiritual food, just physical food, right? Just some more loaves and fishes. And, and, and again, they weren't even there to, uh, to authenticate the claims that Jesus, Jesus had made. They came to get something physical, even material, right? Now, Christians, again, quote-unquote, who, who, who are, are not really believers are those who 
who are looking to get something, who are looking to get some sort of material possession or some wealth, health, right? And maybe those prosperity seekers, right? They treat God like some sort of cosmic vending machine that you sort of just, you know, God, you know, I'm naming it and claiming it I'm, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm claiming this for myself, right? Well, again, that's not what the gospel is. And that's not the point of, of why Christ came to die for our sins and to offer us a relationship with, with the Father. Jesus says himself, right, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there your heart will be also. Now, Jesus says something very important there at the end of that, that passage. He says, for where your heart is, there your treasure, or for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it says a lot of things when you come to church for the sake of earning some sort of prosperity, some sort of blessing from God. It says a lot of things about where your heart truly is when your desire is just profit from the gospel or profit from your attendance at church. And it's, what it says is that it's not actually in the Savior. Maybe it's in your job security, right? Or your finances or your health. And I think a lot of churches, again, do a terrible job at presenting the gospel because what they present is all the benefits, what you would reap. And, 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 you know, we, we're not even talking about prosperity preachers, right? We're just the people who, who the, the churches that just proclaim, hey, you know what? It, you know, God wants this for you, the, the best for you, and all these things. Well, well, what if that's not necessarily God's will for you? What if your, God's will for you is to be like Job, to be broken for a season, to endure in suffering? What if, it's, if God's will for you is like the Apostle Paul who, who prayed three times for a thorn to be removed from his side, but yet had to endure in, in Christ's grace? So it's not, about, it's not all about health and wealth and prosperity, all of these things. In fact, in, in Paul, Paul himself says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Again, this is a characteristic of someone, of someone who claims to be a follower of Christ who will eventually fall away. Because as Jesus himself says in the gospel, you cannot have two masters. You can't have God and money. You can't have God and mammon. You remember the story about the rich young ruler, right? Jesus says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus isn't saying that a wealthy person, a rich person can't be saved or can't enter into the kingdom. But their allegiance, their priorities, their desire in life will often sway them away. Again, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, as mentioned, a lot of churches promote this. There's people who peddle the gospel. But the application is this, right? In our church, at least. Listen, that's not what the gospel is about. 
Jesus left the heavenly realms, his treasures in heaven, his kingdom in heaven, left it all aside so that he could come and save us. What makes you think that he won't require the same of us? To leave our own kingdoms, to leave our own wealth, just to follow him. Jesus himself said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And, you know, I've been talking about wealth a lot here, but it's not just the material stuff, as we mentioned, or as we saw in this passage. It's also the physical stuff. Maybe it's our comfort. It's our security for the sake of following Christ. A true follower of Christ will lay down those things just to be with Christ. False Christians crave only the physical. So let's go back to our passage in verse 28. It says, And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, this is interesting, right? Because Jesus is not giving them the answer that they want to hear. And so these people are now saying, What must we do to be doing the works of God? They're saying, Okay, okay, if you're not going to multiply these loaves and fishes for us, then what do we need to do to be able to do that? Right? What do we need to do to be able to, you know, work, do the work of God, to do this, perform this miracle, right? To make more food out of nothing. What can we do now for this? Now, this is interesting because, again, last characteristic that we'll look at this, this morning. Um, the third characteristic of a false Christian is that false Christians covet their potential. False Christians covet their potential. If they couldn't get Jesus to do this miracle, they would do it themselves. How do we do that? Right? Look, Jesus teaches how to do this. They asked Jesus how they could perform this miracle on their own. Listen, Christians who are there to have some sort of supernatural power or influence or some sort of authority, right? There, there's, there's believers like that who come to a church, who look for a church that, where they can get that, where they can find that. And again, unfortunately, there's, there are churches out there who promote that as well. There's, there's, there's schools for the supernatural, if maybe you've heard of that. You know, forgetting the fact that it's, it's the Holy Spirit, according to the scripture, that provides these spiritual gifts and who, who, who empowers believers to do this stuff. But yet there are believers who are looking to do the same, to profit, again, from the gospel and what, uh, what the Holy Spirit can do. It's also why these self-help churches are so popular these days. You know, unleashing your potential. All of that. You know, overcome your weakness. Or these churches that tell them that you're essentially a good person. You just got to grasp it. You just got to claim it. And just be that person that God has made you to be. All these motivational churches. It's interesting that it, oftentimes it's, it's for the sake of, of trying to get them to overcome sort of insecurity or, or some sort of hardship and all of these things. And so these people come to these churches hoping to be empowered like that, to find that strength, to find that power inside themselves just so that they can do whatever it is that they need to do. But the reality is, again, that's not what the Christian life is about. That's not what Christianity is about. Sometimes God leaves us in our brokenness so that we can rely more on him. Sometimes, you know, God leaves us, sometimes God makes it so that even our ability, our potential is not enough so that we can rely on him for his strength. Because that's, oh, that's, that's what the entire gospel is about. Not our works, not by our strength can we save ourselves. 
only by him. We just mentioned this story of, of Paul and the thorn in his side in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly for my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I love this because Paul is doing the complete opposite of what some of these churches are telling us to do. While these other churches are telling us, you know, you know, boast the fact that God has empowered you. Boast in the fact that God has made you a, a, a strong individual. Paul is saying, I'm boasting in my weakness. I'm boasting in the fact that I don't have the strength. I'm boasting in the fact that I cannot endure. That I'm not patient. That I'm struggling in this sin. And I'm struggling in whatever this, this, this trial is. Because in that boasting, the power of Christ is shown through me. The power of Christ is revealed in my suffering. For the sake of Christ, he continues, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Then I am strong. We can't just skip that process, right? We can't just go, you know, straight to, you know, now I'm empowered. Now I'm, you know, good and strengthened and strengthened and healthy and all these things. The reality is the conclusion that Paul comes to is that, no, I'm broken first. And that's okay. Because in that brokenness, that's where Christ's strength comes through. See, the Christian life is not always about our victories. It's also about our defeats. That's the reality. Because it's in our defeats, in our valleys, in our lows that we cry out to God more. That we get to see how much we need God's strength. That without Him, we cannot endure. That without Him, we cannot keep on fighting. We cannot keep fighting the good fight, striving in our day-to-day life. It's never about us. It's always about God. That's what the gospel is. So these people are asking, you know, what must we do? Right? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Like, how can we do these things? How could we perform this miracle? And look at this. I, I love what Jesus says. Look at this, right? He says in verse 29, look at this. Jesus answered him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus saying, this is the miracle that you should be looking for. This is the miracle that you should be looking after. Because as we talked about, right, the sinful, depraved heart cannot choose God. It is only by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to remove our heart of stone, to replace it with a heart of flesh, can we then choose God. Jesus saying, this is the work of God that you believe. That is the greatest miracle that you could experience in your life. That is the greatest sign of, of, of your faith that you could experience in your life if the Holy Spirit has caused you to believe in a God that you would, you would in your normal, sinful, depraved state, would never choose to follow. That is the greatest miracle in a believer's life, the regeneration of our hearts by a holy and loving God. It says, you want to do the work of God? Believe. Believe in Him. Believe. Have faith in the Son. You know, and just going back to the application of this. If you're here at the church looking to find your potential, right? To, to, be, to be emboldened, to, 
to find your inner strength or your, your good character or whatever it is. Jesus says very plainly, very clearly, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's the message for us this morning, that apart from Christ, you can do nothing as well. It's not about your potential. It's not about what you can do, but what Christ has done on the cross of Calvary, what he's done in the grave. False Christians chase after a spectacle. They're only there for that, that spiritual high. They're only there for the performance, the lights and the sound, the experience. False Christians crave the physical, whether it's health and wealth and anything tangible. They come to church, they, they seek after God, again, like a cosmic vending machine looking to get something out of him. And false Christians covet their potential. They're only after what they can do to increase their prowess, to increase their potential. So at the end of this conversation, if you find yourselves sort of relating with these people who came after Jesus, who were looking after Jesus, what should you do, right? You're thinking, oh no, you know what? Maybe that's where my heart has been or maybe that's why I've been coming to church, or maybe that's why I've been pursuing Christ, is to gain these things, to earn these things. Well, what should you do? There's a story of Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. Maybe you've heard of it. And this, this he was, this, I guess, a street magician, right? Kind of like David Blaine or something back in, back in those days. But then Philip comes, Philip the evangelist comes, and he comes to town, and he starts performing some genuine, authentic miracles. And people were starting to follow him and follow Christ through Philip. And so this Simon, the sorcerer, this wizard, right, he, he, uh, he desires to have that same sort of power. He even says that he got baptized. And Simon, that he himself got baptized, started following. Right? He did the things that everyone else was doing just so that he could obtain this power that Philip had. But then when the, the, the apostles came into town and they were distributing the Holy Spirit, Simon comes up to the apostles and says, hey, give me this so I can do this as well. Give me the Spirit so I can do this as well. And then Peter, knowing his heart, he rebukes Simon. He says, uh, this is in Acts chapter 8, verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit had, was given through the laying on hand of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone who, on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter says in verse 20, may your silver perish with you because you thought you, you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. And this is what he tells him. Repent, therefore, of the weakness of your heart. Of, the, of your wickedness, and pray for, to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And I love that. Because Peter, he gets right to the heart of it. You know, he's not just saying that, hey, you know what, you're, you're a sinner. Yeah, he calls Simon out on being a sinner, but at the same time, he says, I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Peter says, I see that you're struggling with some things. 
And that's why you're pursuing this. I see you're, 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 you're wanting something. You're maybe jealous of, the, the, of Philip for having these, the, this power. But I see that you're, you're, you're struggling with some things. And that's why you're, you want this for yourself. And the reality is maybe you're coming to church and you have these desires and you're pursuing these things in your life because, because there are insecurities that you have. There are weaknesses that you're struggling with, trials that you're dealing with in your life. And that's why you think that pursuing money, pursuing some sort of excitement, pursuing your potential is the answer to that. It's not. The answer to your struggles in this life is Jesus Christ. That's why, that's, that's, that's why we come together. That's why we, we come together to worship and proclaim the gospel. Because the answer to all of those, those struggles in life is not what Jesus can give you, but Jesus himself. That's why Jesus says, I am the bread of life. It's not, hey, this thing I'm about to give you is the bread of life. Or this hope or this, 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 this word it's, or, or this, this community is not. No, he says, I am the bread of life. He points us to himself. He points us who are in need to himself. And that's real faith, right? That's real faith. Because it's, it's declaring that, you know what, God, even if I don't get what I want, even if I don't get the material possessions that I want, even if I don't get the security that I want, even if I don't get the emotional high that I want, I'm still following you because you are Jesus. You're the lover of my soul. You're the one who died for my sins. You're the one who saved me. I'm following you. That's real faith. That's real faith. And Simon, the sorcerer, he says at the very end of what Peter says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. He recognizes where he has gone astray. He recognizes, man, you know what, it's true. I'm just looking for God to, to you know, meet sort of this material wealth or all these other things. He, came, he comes to the conclusion of pray for me, you know, that my heart would be in right order, that that judgment doesn't fall upon me. And listen, if that's you this morning, if you're coming to those terms as well, I pray. Yeah, I pray for you as well. That you're not here for any other reason except Jesus. You're not here for any other reason except for Savior of our souls. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.